So, as I'm sure you've noticed, Dow's not here. Uh, he's playing hooky this morning. I'm just kidding. He's actually sick, uh, very sick. Uh, he called me yesterday, probably 3 o'clock or so. Danielle and I were painting the nursery in our house. Oh, by the way, Danielle's pregnant, in case you didn't know. Surprise. Um, thank you. Um, but we were painting in the nursery, and I get a call from Dow, and he tells me that he might need me tomorrow, but it didn't sound like Dow normally sounds. He sounded pretty bad. Um, he, he's, he's pretty sick this morning. So I tell you this for two reasons. One, because I want you to be able to pray for our pastor, because uh, he is sick, and uh, I'm sure he would covet those prayers. But two, so that hopefully you might take it easy on me this morning. Uh, I actually saw a video one time of a Christian comedian who was uh, with some of his friends and they were doing a skit called, What If Church Was Like Fantasy Football? And what they did was they sat in the living room and they drafted pastors, okay, and they drafted pastors to be on their uh, made-up team. And at the end of it, the, the comedian stands up and he goes, but remember guys, if your pastor is out on his bye week, just remember you can plug and play your youth pastor, just expect less results. <laughs> so here we are this morning. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I am very thankful for this opportunity. I take it very seriously. Uh, preaching the word is uh, not a, a small task, I, and I am very thankful uh, to have this opportunity today. With that said, though, I want to play a game to start off the sermon. I know this is going to be really weird. You're looking at me, oh, it's the youth pastor. He just wants to play games. But you'll, you'll understand why in just a minute. So the game we're going to play is called Which is Easier? Okay, and it's going to be exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to give you two options, and you guys, just through your hands, I know we're Baptists, so we don't always want to raise our hands, but just through your hands being raised, you'll tell me which one that you think is easier, okay? So the first, uh, the first group here, I'm going to ask you, is it easier for you to do math or to do English? Who thinks it's easier to do math? Okay, decent amount of hands up. I know my wife's hand will go up for the next one because is English easier? Who thinks that? That's pretty split down the middle. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll count it on the video later. Well, all right, second, second choice. Is it easier to use a PC or an Apple product? Who thinks it's easier to use a PC? All right, it looks like this one's going the other way. Who thinks it's easier to use Apple? All right, Apple wins that one, I think. All right, we've got a couple more. Is it easier for you to stay up really late or wake up really early? Who thinks it's easier to stay up really late? <laughs> All right, I think that one's going to win on the land side. And wake up really early. Okay, there's more than I thought, but I think staying up late won that one, especially for our younger crowd. And the last one, and this one I think will really be telling based on age, but is it easier for you to go a day without your phone or a day without food? Who thinks it's easier to go a day without your phone? I'm noticing in the back there's a section of young people that haven't raised their hands yet. Is it easier to go a day without food? Just a handful of people. Just a handful of people. All right, so you're probably looking at me like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you playing a game on Sunday morning? Well, I want to play this game because Jesus played this game one time. Okay, Jesus, uh, probably at Peter's house, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but 
he played this game with some people at Peter's house. Okay, but the choice that Jesus gave to them wasn't an easy choice, like is math easier or English easier. Instead, Jesus actually provided with them with two impossible choices. His question was, is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to rise, get up, and walk? So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2 today. If you have your Bible, it would be great if you could pull that out. If you don't, there, uh, most of these pews have pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, looking at the first 12 verses today. Um, but before we dive in too deep, I want to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I, I thank you again for this opportunity to preach your word this morning. I ask that you uh, bless this time, that you will allow your word to be heard and not my own. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for these church members. I pray that you will remove any and all distractions from our lives this morning, distractions from a stressful work week, distractions from the busyness of kids, distractions from a tough time at school. God, I pray you remove all of them. And I pray you do this so that we can be completely and utterly focused on you this morning. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so as I said a minute ago, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Uh, for those of you who stopped flipping during the prayer and you want to keep going, you can go ahead. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, but there's, there's a lot to unpack in these verses. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. But before we get into the actual verses themselves, we've got to give a little bit of background information. Okay? Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. Why they decided to use his middle name, I'm not entirely sure. It could have been because they already had a John the Disciple and a John the Baptist that they knew, and John the Presbyterian just wasn't a great name for this guy. So they might have just been like, all right, what's his middle name? All right, let's call it Mark. So John Mark wrote Mark, and in writing Mark, uh, some of it came from his own eyewitness testimony because Mark, although he wasn't a disciple, he and his mom and maybe the rest of his family probably followed Jesus from a distance throughout the Gospels. We, we hear about this group of 70. We don't know if it's 70 people or 70 families or what, but this group of 70 that followed Jesus from a distance, it's probably likely that Mark and his mother were a part of this group. So some of what Mark writes could have been from eyewitness accounts, and some of it he got from other sources like Peter and Paul that he met down the road, but all of it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we know that Mark's gospel is a reliable one to teach. So the beginning of Mark chapter 2 begins with, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Okay, so chapter 2 picks up where chapter 1 left off, which makes sense. Right? There are people who are so astounded at the things that Jesus has been doing. They're so uh, completely shocked and amazed, really, at the, the incredible miracles that he's performing in which he had just healed Peter's mother off of her deathbed. He had just driven a demon out of some people. He had just uh, healed another man with an unclean spirit, healed people who were sick and who were lame. He had just done all this stuff. So these people are amazed at what Jesus is doing. They're so amazed that they're following him around. Okay, and these people who are following Jesus around are literally following him to the house at which that he's staying. Okay, in uh, the last verse of Mark chapter 1, it said that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The people 
were trying to figure out what this miracle worker, this Jesus was about. They wanted to be there for his next miracle. And so many people, in fact, followed Jesus that uh, in Mark 2, it says that many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So they're probably at Peter's house. And, and we, can, we can think that because Peter was from Capernaum. And when the disciples and Jesus would go back to Capernaum, they generally would stay at Peter's house. So this is probably Peter's house where they're gathered. And it says that there are so many people that there is no room even at the door. So this isn't your typical packed out church service where every seat's taken and there's nowhere to sit. No, there's nowhere to stand in this place. This place is so full that all the way down the aisles and the back and the doorway, it's full. No one can even get into Peter's house. That's how full this place is. And Jesus is preaching the Old Testament to them. You know how I know he's preaching the Old Testament to them? Because the New Testament was happening. It hadn't been written yet. It was in the process of happening. He's teaching the Old Testament scriptures to these people. And what he's trying to tell them is that, hey, all that stuff that you've read in the Old Testament, all of this that you know from the law and the prophets, that's talking about me. But they weren't quite getting the message just yet. Mark goes on in verse 3 to say, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Who is they? We don't know. But they are bringing a paralytic to Jesus. Okay, all we know about they is that it's four guys bringing their friend to Jesus. But verse 4 tells us a little bit more about him. It says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. They seem to not be the type of guys that would give up very easily. They're carrying their friend their paralytic friend, on a mat because obviously he cannot walk, he's paralyzed. They're carrying him and they see that there's no chance they can get in through the door. It was about this time, though, that Peter probably regretted having the stairs installed on the side of his house because these four guys carried their friend up the stairs or up the ladder or whatever was there and they got inspired a little bit. And they invented the world's first redneck skylight. And they cut a hole in the roof and they dropped their friend down in front of Jesus. Now, scripture doesn't really tell us Peter's reaction here. I'd imagine he's freaking out a little bit. All right? You know, Geico has homeowner's insurance. I'm not sure if they have random guys cutting a hole in your roof insurance. So he's probably having a little bit of a breakdown at this point. But scripture does tell us that Jesus had a different reaction. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the reactions to Jesus saying this were probably pretty interesting to watch. You would have had a lot of different uh, reactions here. Number one, just thinking about they, you know, our four guys that carried their friend, they are probably pretty disappointed. They brought Jesus or brought their friend to Jesus in the hopes that he would be healed. And now Jesus is saying, your, your sins are forgiven. These guys are like, we just cost ourselves a whole lot of money in fixing Peter's roof so that you can say your sins are forgiven? So they're probably pretty disappointed. 
The rest of the crowd was probably pretty excited when they saw the saw digging through the roof, like in Looney Tunes. You know, they, they probably got pretty excited there, thinking, all right, something cool's about to happen. When they saw this paralytic man, they're oh yeah, we're about to see Jesus heal somebody. They'd heard the stories of Jesus healing Peter's mother, and they'd heard the stories of Jesus casting out demons and healing people. They're getting excited. They're like, all right, we're about to get some healing action in front of us right now. This is going to be cool. But then Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. I'd have to imagine the air was kind of let out of this very packed room at this point. They're like, well, what's going on here? And a third group of people who would have reacted would have been the religious leaders in the room. We actually get the specific reactions of one uh, of these groups of people called the scribes. Verses 6 and 7 say, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Now, if you don't know who the scribes were, they were some of the religious leaders in Israel. And, and these guys were very highly educated in the scriptures. Like so much to the point, one of their tasks was to, from memory, write the Old Testament. Just write it out, specifically the Torah. But they would write it from memory. They had it that well memorized a lot of the time. So these guys, for the most part, would have known what they were talking about. And honestly, most of what they're saying is right. They're absolutely right in saying that only God can forgive sins. They're absolutely right about this. But then something kind of crazy happens in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Let's not just skip over this verse, okay? Jesus read their minds. That's not normal. People don't do that. In case you weren't aware, this is abnormal. This doesn't happen. People do not actually read people's minds. But yet Jesus did that here. And if this didn't prove to these people that Jesus is something special, if this didn't prove to them that he was who he said he was, he went on to say this in verses 9 to 10. He said, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to stop in the middle of that statement. Okay. Jesus gives the purpose for which, uh, for which his next actions and words are given. Right? And that's so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So keep that in your mind. We'll talk about that in just a second. But there's a whole lot of other things going on in Jesus' statement here. Okay? First, he, he played our which is easier game. Right? You, you get the connection now. I don't look like quite as much of a goofball standing up here playing a game. You get what happened. Right? Jesus played the witch's easier game with the people in the house, but he didn't play fair. Jesus presented two impossible choices for the people. Thinking of these two things, forgiveness of sin before God is certainly impossible, for a man to give because that is something only God can do. And these scribes in the room, they know this. They know the Old Testament scriptures very well. These scribes would have known that in uh, Psalm 130 verse 4 and in 2 Chronicles 7:14 that it is ascribed only to God to have the power to forgive sins. So these scribes, they know that this is a problematic statement. And then 
telling a paralytic man to get up and walk, that's just layers and layers of weird because first off, he's paralyzed. According to Webster's Dictionary, uh, if someone is paralyzed, it means they are in the state of being unable to move. So telling someone who is unable to move doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They cannot move. But considering that this man is paralyzed in the first century, there's a very good chance that he's been paralyzed for a long time. They didn't have the medical technology that we have today in which you may recover from paralysis. Chances are this guy's been paralyzed for a long time and will be paralyzed for the rest of his life. Now, if someone doesn't move, doesn't use their muscles for a long period of time, something happens. It's called muscle atrophy. Okay, and muscle atrophy, basically, if I had to explain it in a really simple, uh, non-scientific way, it means your muscles are deteriorating and going away. They're dissolving almost because of lack of use. So even if somehow this guy's state of paralysis would end, his muscles have deteriorated and atrophied so much to the point that if he tried to stand up, he'd fall over. And if they held him up and then he tried to take a step, he'd fall over. So Jesus telling this this man that he can get up and walk is a weird statement to make. Jesus gave them impossible choices that no man could ever fulfill. But Jesus is not just a man. Okay? He called himself in verse 10 the son of man, which at first glance might seem like he's just saying he's a human because that's kind of what it sounds like to us. We know that a man must have at one point been a son of man. But if you look at this closely, and this is something that the scribes would have known, in Daniel chapter 7, specifically in verses 13 and 14, the prophet Daniel refers to the Son of Man. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came out like a Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. So this Son of Man is actually a reference to the Messiah. Is actually a reference to the Son of God that was to come to redeem God's people. So Jesus saying that he is the Son of Man is not him saying that he's a human. This is him saying he is God. This is a big claim. And this is not just, well, maybe he's saying it, maybe he's not. No, Jesus is explicitly saying, I am the Lord when he calls himself the Son of Man. And to further drive home his claim, Jesus tells them that he, as the Son of Man, has the authority and the power to forgive sins, something that, as we mentioned earlier, was only given to God. The rest of verse 10 through the beginning of verse 12 says this, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Jesus understood something about this group of people, especially about the scribes. They would not believe anything that he had to say when it came to the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because they could not see the result of that. They wouldn't have believed him. So Jesus then did another impossible task to show them that he meant what he said. A guy named William McDonald, who's a, a theologian today, he, he said this about this passage. He said, the Lord had already pronounced the man's sins forgiven. Yes, but had it really actually taken place? 
The scribes could not see the man's sins forgiven. Therefore, they would not believe. In order to demonstrate that the man's sins had really been forgiven, the Savior gave the scribes something they could see. He told the paralytic man to get up, to carry his straw pad, and walk. And he responded instantly. Jesus proved himself to be God and therefore that he was the Son of Man, the Messiah who has authority to forgive sins. He claimed that he could do an impossible thing like forgive sins, but to prove it, he showed them something they could see, something tangible in healing this paralytic man and healing his muscle atrophy to the point where not only could he get up, he could get up and walk in front of all of them. They all saw this, and this proved that Jesus meant what he said, and he was who he said he was. I want us to notice, though, the final part of verse 12. All right, this is right after uh, the man gets up and walks. Okay, this is right after uh, he goes in front of all of them. Mark says this, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So on this day, many of the people crammed inside of Peter's house, and maybe even a couple of them who are still on the roof, were amazed at who Jesus was. They were amazed at what he could do. They were amazed at the fact that Jesus was God. So my challenge for us this morning is that we'll have the same response to Jesus. I pray for this church that we will never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus is God, that he is the most high, the almighty and holy Lord, creator and sustainer of the whole universe. I pray for this church that we will never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus is the son of man, the Messiah who has the authority and the power to forgive sins and save his people. I pray for this church that we will never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus took the initiative in saving us, that he left heaven to come to us because we could never get to him otherwise. And I pray for this church that we will never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life on this earth and abolished the sacrificial system from the Old Testament by becoming the perfect sacrifice through his undeserved death on a cross. And I pray for this church that we never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus defeated sin, defeated death, and defeated hell by raising from the grave after the third day, providing with his physical resurrection a spiritual resurrection for us in which we are raised from death to life. And I pray for this church that we never cease to be amazed at the fact that Jesus is seated on his throne because the work necessary for our salvation is completed. That there's no more work needed to be done to redeem his people. This is not to say that God is not working, he is, but that the work necessary for salvation is completed because he said it is finished. I pray that we never cease to be amazed at Jesus Christ, that we never cease to be amazed at the fact that he is God that he has the power and the authority to forgive the sins of sinners like me and like you. That's what I pray for Holland.